Good morning, everybody. Hey, so good to see all of you here. Like, I, sometimes the Sunday after Christmas is really low, and so it's, it's great to see you all here. Um, thank, thankful that you're here. Uh, if you're new with us, really glad you're here. Thank you. After the service today, um, it's the last Sunday of the month, so it's, we call this Meet the Leaders Sunday, and so if you'd like to hang out for a little bit after the, the, the service and meet some of the leaders, the elders, deacons, and other staff here, uh, we'll be around in the, in the lobby and, and around here. We'd love to get to know you better. Um, Normally, we preach through a book verse by verse, and this month we've taken a little break from that, just uh, been celebrating the Christmas season, and uh, we'll get back into that starting next week, God willing, uh, in the book of Ephesians. And today, uh, we decided as we head into the new year, uh, just to take a, a moment and think about who we are as a church and what our membership here has has uh, declared that we believe and and how we have covenanted to live together, and we want to reaffirm that heading into 2020. So that's what we're doing today, and I'm so glad that you are here with us. You know, one of the things that uh, can make driving dangerous this time of year uh, are the heavy fogs that can suddenly move onto the roadway. I don't know, uh, have, you ever, have you ever got caught in one of these fogs <laughs> while you're driving on the road? Okay, a lot of us have. Um, you know, over the past month, heavy fog has caused several major car crashes around our country. Last month, outside Spokane, freezing fog caused the largest car crash in recent history in Washington. Uh, a heavy fog quickly moved on to I-90, and cars crashed into each other, and in, there, was a, there was a 38 car pileup. Um, outside of Spokane, and thankful. And if you've ever driven that, like just, I, th I don't know exactly where it happened, but man, around Spokane, it can be pretty sketchy this time of year. I got stuck there for three days this time of year um, a few years ago, but thankfully everybody escaped alive. There were no life-threatening injuries even. Um, in just this week in Virginia, a fog rolled onto I-64 in eastern Virginia, maybe you heard about this, caused around 70 vehicles to pile up. Um, and that wreck happened during the daytime. <laughs> it, was, it was light, the sun was out. I, I, I imagine some of you know how scary it can be when you are driving through the fog at nighttime, right? Has that happened to you before? Um, thick fog and darkness are not a good combination. It's hard enough to drive around here at night when the conditions are clear. But fog just adds this extra level of anxiety when you're, you're kind of fanic, frantically trying to figure out what's, what's ahead of you, what's in front of you, and you don't know who's coming behind you and how fast they're going. It, it could be a very scary situation. Darkness and fogginess are two words that also describe the moral and spiritual condition of our society right now. Jesus used the word darkness to describe the wickedness of humanity and also to describe the lostness of people who don't know God. They're in the dark. And as if the spiritual darkness of, of the human race wasn't uh, dark uh, and dangerous enough, um, we we now have this thick fog that has descended upon our society in recent dec decades, and in just recent years, the fog has only thickened. Truths that our society used to see as clear and as self-evident 
are now seen as unclear and ambiguous. Truth about basic things like gender and adolescence and marriage and sexuality and the sanctity of all human life should be a given. Um, what it means to be good and honorable. Uh, respect, basic morality, basic ethics. So many truths which were, were crystal clear to our grandparents' generation um, are now questioned, redefined, and sometimes rejected altogether. And sadly, this postmodern fog that has infiltrated uh, our society has also infiltrated many of our, our homes, our Christian homes. It's infiltrated many of our Christian churches. It's infiltrated many of our countries, Christian colleges and seminaries. Many churches now consider their statements of faith to be too rigid and too unaccommodating to the surrounding culture. Even churches similar to ours, which we are more conservative theologically means that we simply believe what Christians have always believed, that Jesus is God and that the Bible is God's word. That's what it means to be a conservative Christian, um, is to believe Jesus, essentially. Um, even churches similar to ours are removing statements of faith from their websites. They're rewriting them so as not to offend anybody. Churches are giving into the fog. And even among many of the churches in a small community like ours, we would not all agree on something as simple as what the gospel is. To some Christians, the gospel is, is simply that God loves us. That's good news, they would say. To others, the gospel is that Jesus fills us with his resurrection power so that we can go make the world a better place. And to others, the gospel is that God's son died on a cross as our atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to relationship with God. Very often, the God preached about on Sunday mornings is not the holy, awesome, glorious, sinless creator God of the universe, the God whose majesty makes us fear and tremble. Instead, the God that many Christians believe in is a God who needs our friendship, who mainly wants to make our lives better and happier and more fun. Here's a short video uh, I found that kind of describes the Jesus that our culture loves. can't get behind a Jesus like that. The Jesus who essentially worships us, right? Um, and that is the Jesus that many of our neighbors think of. And uh, when they think of, of Jesus, because of the spiritual darkness and the dangerous fog in which we find ourselves, believers and non-believers 
What we need desperately right now is more clarity and more definition, not more uncertainty and ambiguity. And so as we we head into 2020 as a church family, uh, it's more important than ever that we look to God's word to give us clarity and definition and boldness in our faith. We've called today Reaffirmation Sunday because we want to reaffirm today. We're not creating anything new. We just want to reaffirm what we at Cedar Home Baptist Church believe about who God is. I mean, when was the last time you read through our church statement of faith? I don't know. We want to reaffirm who God says that we are. And we want to reaffirm how God wants us to live together. When was the last time you read through the church covenant to which you have committed yourself, if you're a member here? And as we do that, we need to understand the importance of both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And Pastor Ray Ortland has written helpful definitions of these two terms. First, what is gospel doctrine? Gospel doctrine is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's gospel doctrine. Our church's gospel doctrine is summarized in our church statement of faith. Now what is gospel culture? Gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships and vibe and feel and tone and values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. And our church's gospel culture is summarized in our church covenant as well as in our church purpose statement and in our church values. Now, why is it critical for our church to have both gospel doctrine and gospel culture? Ortland writes, because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches as we seek to follow God together according to his word. Sadly, it is possible to sincerely preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. So I wanna begin by taking a few minutes to talk about gospel doctrine and then as we, um, we as members will reaffirm the doctrines in our statement of faith as our elders read it aloud. And then after that, Dylan will spend a few, times ta- a few minutes talking about gospel culture, and then uh, we as the members will reaffirm our church covenant as a few of our deacons and their wives read it aloud. So how do the gospel doctrines in our church statement of faith help us as a church family follow Jesus together in a dark and foggy world? And I want to offer three brief answers. First, gospel doctrine gives us clarity about what we believe as Christians. 
So as Christians in this society, we need more theological clarity and certainty. Honestly, what, one thing I really appreciate, even people who, from other religions, and other, is just clarity. Like just being honest about what you believe. Because <laughs> it, it, it can be difficult even knowing what other denominations and, and churches even believe anymore. We mean different things by different terms. Um, we, what we don't need though is more ambiguity and uncertainty. And so it's crucial that our gospel doctrine, our beliefs, our statement of faith, and our church covenant all come straight from God's word, okay? Because God is clear. He's very clear in his word about who he is, who we are, what we need in order to be uh, reconciled to him, what we need to have everlasting joy, true life, and peace. God defines truth, not us. God defines morality, not us. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, 14 to 16 to the church, to Christians, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must hold fast to the word of life in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. God's word, the scriptures, the Bible tells us the truth we should believe, the truth that is, and God's word gives us clarity and defines gospel doctrine for us. Second, gospel doctrine aligns us with theological orthodoxy. Let me define those. I know those are kind of big words. Orthodoxy is a word that means right doctrine or right teaching. And so theological orthodoxy means right teaching about God. Theological orthodoxy thus refers to the right teaching about God from Scripture that Christians have believed since Scripture was written 2,000 plus years ago. The opposite of theological orthodoxy is theological unorthodoxy, which describes wrong teachings about God and about the Bible that stray away from or contradict what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Many Christians and churches in our society and around the world take pride in being theologically unorthodox or theologically progressive. Unorthodox folks gladly embrace and promote new ways to be Christian and groundbreaking perspectives about scripture that have somehow been lost over 2,000 years. Lost insights about Jesus and following him and what it means to be his disciple. So ironically, theological progressivism um, and cultural conformity and unorthodox beliefs all describe ways of thinking that contradict the way that God describes himself in scripture. In passages like Malachi, Malachi 3.6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. 
And in passages like Isaiah 48, God says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. One of my favorite writers and theologians is named Jerry Bridges. And I always remember something he said about biblical teaching. He said, if it's true, it's probably not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. The gospel doctrine in our church statement of faith aligns us with trustworthy, orthodox, right Christian beliefs that have been affirmed by Christians for 2,000 years. And third, gospel doctrine gives us humble confidence in the true gospel of Jesus. So because our statement of faith gives us both biblical clarity and theological orthodoxy, we can, as a result, confidently trust in and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus crucified for sinners has been handed down to us for 2,000 years from the apostles, from Jesus, from the Lord himself. And so we confess with the apostle Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. And while we have total confidence in the gospel, the gospel ought to, at the same time, greatly humble us. Because the true gospel, true gospel doctrine, says that we contribute nothing to the good news of Jesus as people. God does not save sinners because they are worthy, but because he is good and merciful. The gospel says we have nothing to boast about <laughs> except Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection. Gospel humility does not allow us to have too high a view of ourselves. It makes us judge ourselves soberly. And then in light of the good news, we can celebrate who we are as redeemed children only in and because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Gospel humility, humility does not allow us to add to the gospel or to take away from the gospel or to progress from the gospel. Instead, gospel humility causes us to cling to it, to cling to Jesus Christ, to cling to God the Son, crucified and resurrected as our Savior, for the forgiveness of our sin to give us eternal peace with God himself. So I'm gonna ask the elders to come forward now uh, as we reaffirm the gospel doctrines in our church statement of faith. And as they do that, let me review those three points. Gospel doctrine gives us clarity about what we believe as Christians. Second, gospel doctrine aligns us with theological orthodoxy. And gospel doctrine gives us humble confidence in the true gospel of Jesus. So you have to kind of hold this close to your lip. So uh, I'm gonna read the first couple of doctrines here. And I think we're gonna put them on the screen too. The word of God. We believe that the Bible is the word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Trinity. 
We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal in every divine perfection, and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. God the Father. We believe in God, the Father, an infinite personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. We believe that he concerns himself mercifully in the affairs of each person, that he hears and answers prayer, and that he saves from sin and death all who come to him through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in his virgin birth, sinless life, miracles, and teachings. We believe in his substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for his people, and personal, visible return to earth. The Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit who came forth from the Father and Son to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to regenerate, sanctify, and empower all who believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Christ and that he is an abiding helper, teacher, and guide. Regeneration. We believe that all people are sinners by nature and by choice and are therefore under condemnation. We believe that those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Church. We believe in the universal church, a living spiritual body of which Christ is the head and all regenerated persons are members. We believe in the local church consisting of a company of believers in Jesus Christ, baptized on a, con a credible confession of faith and associated for worship, work, and fellowship. We believe that God has laid upon the members of the local church the primary task of giving the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Christian conduct. We believe that Christians should live for the glory of God and the well-being of others, and their conduct should be blameless before the world, and they should be faithful stewards of their possessions, and that they should seek to realize for themselves and others the full stature of maturity in Christ. The ordinances. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has committed two ordinances to the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the triune God. We believe that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ for commemoration of his death. We believe that these two ordinances should be observed and administered until the return of the Lord Jesus. 
religious liberty. We believe that every human being has direct relations with God and is responsible to God alone in all matters of faith. That each church is independent and must be free from interference by any e-classical or political authority. That therefore church and state must be kept separate as having different functions, each fulfilling its duties free from dictation or patronage of another. Church cooperation. We believe that local churches can best promote the cause of Jesus Christ by cooperating with one another in a denominational organization. Such an organization, whether a regional or district conference, exists and functions by the will of the churches. Cooperation in a conference is voluntary and may be terminated at any time. Churches may likewise cooperate with interdenominational fellowships on a voluntary basis. The last things. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal joy of the righteous, and the endless suffering of the wicked. All right. Thank you, guys. Praise God. <clears throat> um, at this point, I'm going to hand it over to Dylan, and he's going to talk about why gospel doctrine must go hand-in-hand hand with gospel culture. Our church's uh, purpose statement, which is on the front page of our website and church bulletin, and which is kind of a summary of our church covenant, which we're gonna read and reaffirm in just a few minutes. Uh, our church's purpose statement is this. Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. And here, this, this term gospel-centered does not simply mean that as we do life together, we remember the doctrinal content of the gospel or that we keep the gospel in mind. It means that the gospel informs how we do life together for the glory of God. And what that means is that as a church, we wanna live life in such a way that we magnify and reflect the beauty of Christ and the gospel uh, in how we Seek to love one another as Christ has loved us, John 13, 34, rather than hate one another. And remain devoted to one another, Romans 12, 10, rather than forsake one another. And honor one another, also Romans 12, 10, rather than shame one another. And live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16, rather than in conflict with one another. And build up one another, Romans 14, 19, rather than tear one another down. And welcome one another, Romans 15, 7, rather than turn one another away. And graciously correct one another, Romans 15, 14, rather than overlook the destructive sins of one another. And care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, rather than neglect one another. And serve one another, Galatians 5, 13, rather than take from one another and bear the burdens of one another, Galatians 6, 2, rather than let one another carry their burdens alone and forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 2, rather than resent one another and remain patient with one another, also Ephesians 4, 2, rather than irritated and annoyed with one another 
and remain kind and compassionate toward one another, Ephesians 4.32, rather than inconsiderate and indifferent to one another, and submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21, rather than step on one another, and comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, rather than abuse one another, and encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, rather than frustrate one another, and stir up one another, Hebrews 10.24, rather than hinder one another, and show hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4.9, rather than coldness and unfriendliness to one another, and clothe ourselves with humility to one another, 1 Peter 5.5, rather than pride or a notion of self-impressiveness to one another, and confess our sins to one another, James 5.16, rather than keep our sins a secret from one another, and pray for one another, also James 5.16, rather than gossip about one another. And on and on and on, there are so many wonderful one another's we're called to in scripture, all of which in some way show forth an aspect of the beauty of the gospel and give it a kind of visible, tangible, incarnational flesh, as it were. Meaning, uh, as we see, for example, forgiveness happening in our church, it should reflect and give us a picture of how through Christ, our record of wrongs is not counted against us, but has been graciously wiped clean. So our forgiveness should point to the gospel and should be motivated by the gospel. I've heard it put this way before. We can be forgiving people because we're forgiven people. See how that works? And there are lots of passages in scripture that talk about gospel culture as an outgrowth of gospel doctrine. Uh, in fact, Jesus began his first extended sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, by talking about gospel culture in the Beatitudes. But I wanna look at just one passage this morning which shows us the link between gospel doctrine and culture, and that is Romans chapter 12. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 12. It's in the New Testament, Romans, it's the sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter 12. And if you've ever read the book of Romans, uh, you know that it is probably the most theologically heavy book in the entire Bible. Uh, like if all the books of the Bible are mountains, Romans is Mount Everest on top of K2, right? But in chapter 12, after the Apostle Paul has talked about the wrath and judgment of God and man's total depravity, and justification by faith alone, and the perseverance of the saints, and federal headship, and sanctification, and unconditional election, and all of this high theology. In chapter 12, he brings it all down to base camp, down to a real practical level, and he leads us down the mountain with these opening words of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, coordinating conjunction, which is intended to point us back to everything Paul has just said in the first 11 chapters and to show us that all of this high theology was not intended to stay up there above the clouds, but was leading us all here, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Such a great chapter. If we had more time, we could look at all the, we could, we could comb through it point for point, showing how all of these things point back to the gospel doctrine in chapters one through 11. And I'll just do this for the first uh, cultural point that appears, um, just to show you what I'm talking about. Verse one says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now here's a connecting doctrinal passage, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ sacrificed himself for us. So one of the things that characterizes a gospel culture is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. A people who, in reflection of Christ himself, have taken up the call to come and die. Willfully sacrificing their time their energy, their talents, their abilities, their resources, their money, their plans, 
and perhaps even their very lives for the glory of God and for the good of others. And anyone who would object, think about this, anyone who would object to the idea of self-sacrifice cannot receive the self-sacrifice of Jesus for them. See how that works? We can't have it but not give it. We can't have it but not give it. We cannot say, I love gospel doctrine, but gospel culture really isn't my thing. We cannot just give lip service to the gospel. We must give life service to the gospel. We cannot just be hearers of the word only. We must be doers of the word also. Amen? And so, as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, we lay our lives down for the glory of God and for the sake of one another. Why? Because Christ has laid down himself for us. And when we do, what a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. Amen? And you know what? There is so much, there is so much in this church worth commending. Uh, I shared in a sermon a little over a month ago that I first visited Cedar Home because someone here cared for me and reached out to me at a time in my life when things had fallen apart. And I kept coming back to this church because I was warmly welcomed here and accepted here and loved here and built up here and prayed for here. I kept coming back to this church because unlike some other churches that I've walked into, this church's culture matched what was being claimed in its statement of faith and church covenant. And I covenanted myself to this church. I became a member here because I decided that if God has made me an ear in the body of Christ, I wanna be an ear here. I wanna join myself to this local church body to help this church grow and walk with God for the glory of God. And so thank you, church. I commend you and I thank you for showing the gospel to my family. I thank you for caring for us and loving us well. It means everything to us. And the Lord smiles upon you. He is so glorified by that. He is so glorified that you have made me and my wife Natalie love him more by loving us with his love. Thank you. He is so glorified by that. And my prayer for this church is that we will just continue to grow more and more as a culture that shows forth the beauty of all aspects of this great gospel that we've received and that we've been entrusted with, not only within these walls, but outside of these walls as well. Amen? Amen. With that, I wanna invite the Hutzels and Alexanders to come up to the stage to read and reaffirm with us our church covenant. Having been led by the Holy Spirit of God to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and to confess him as Lord, and on confession of this faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ to lead a life worthy of the Lord fully 
pleasing to him. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love and in paths of righteousness. With this in view, we engage to strive together for both the peace and purity of this church to sustain its worship and steadfastly to cherish and hold its ordinances, discipline and doctrines, to contribute as faithful stewards such time, talent and money in the measure as God prospers each of us that the responsibility for the work of the local church and the worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel be faithfully and effectively discharged. We believe that all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to a life of separation from worldly and sinful practices and should abstain from such amusements, amusements and practices and habits as will cause others to stumble or bring reproach upon the name of Jesus. A positive Christian life should include active participation in individual and family worship, regular church attendance and support, exemplary Christian conduct, and witnessing to a lost world. We further engage to give and receive admonition with meekness and affection, to remember each other in prayer, and to aid each other in case of sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation, and mindful of the scriptures, to seek it without delay, to encourage one another in the blessed hope of our Lord's return. We moreover engage that when we move from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some local church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of the word of God. Thank you everybody for being here to get today. I feel like God was glorified during this time today. And uh, um, would you please stand with me as, uh, as I close our time together? Next week, we plan to start the book of Ephesians, which goes right hand in hand with everything we just talked about. The first three chapters are about the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and the second three chapters are about what we, therefore, as a result of the gospel, are called, uh, how we are called to live in community with one another. And so, um, I sure hope you will join us for that. And... Um, Spread the word. We'd love to have lots of people here for that. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for this time we've had together today. Um, thank you, God, for being clear with us, um, giving us the clarity of your word, the truth of scripture, uh, which tells us <laughs> humans who are finite um, how we can know you, what sin has done to us and why we need you as our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for being a God who is great and awesome and worthy of our worship and at the same time has condescended to our level so that we can know you personally, so that we can be uh, pure in you, so that we can be reconciled to God. Thank you, God, for doing that for us because we cannot do it ourselves. God, as we think about these things we've read, uh, we, we celebrate that we are not saved into a relationship with you. We're not saved from our sin because we have perfectly obeyed you, but because Christ has on our behalf. 
And so now we want to be living sacrifices, not to pay you back, but to bring you glory in the way that we obey you and seek to love you and to love one another well. I pray, Lord, that you would help us do that in our families, um, in our churches, in our workplaces, wherever we are, Holy Spirit, may we abide in you and you in us. We need you, Lord. Uh, We ask for your guidance and your hand upon our church as we head into 2020 and in our families. We do not know what the future holds, but you do, Lord. You're already there. You're not surprised by anything, and we're so thankful that in Christ you are with us and for us. Thank you, God. Praise to you. Uh, We love you, and we just want to honor you in our thoughts and our actions and words today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, some of the leaders will be hanging out after the service. We'd love to get to know you if you're new. Thank you for being here. God bless you guys.